the reaction of faith and the reaction of unfaith right beside one another. I know of no other story in the Bible that contrasts these two reactions so sharply. We also see the previously demonized man's immediate desire to proclaim his Lord in the face of the majority who denies him. Did you notice that? As all the townsfolks are there and they say to Jesus, you need to just leave. We don't want you here. Now, as the townsfolks say that to Jesus, we should understand that's not just one or two of them. That's not just the mayor with maybe a couple of the important people in the town. It's not just maybe the three or four or five people that were the owners of the herd of pigs. Luke tells us in Luke 8 verse 37, all of the people. Now, we know that the Bible uses words just like we use words. And sometimes when the Bible uses the words all, it doesn't mean literally all the people, just like we use all sometimes. All of Jerusalem was turned upside down at the apostles' teachings. That doesn't mean that every single person living in Jerusalem fell into that category. But the Bible sometimes uses that word to literally mean all, but at the very least, the Bible always uses that word to mean at the very minimum, the majority. And so at the very minimum, the majority of the town And neither Luke nor Matthew nor Mark makes any mention of of a group of people, of a group of townspeople that didn't want Jesus to go. None of the the three gospel writers make any mention of two or three or four or five people that thought, well, maybe we wish Jesus could stay, but everybody else is telling Him to go, so we're not going to speak up. Instead, we're given the picture of the town in uniformity saying, you got to go. We don't want your kind here. And in the midst of that, notice, this is when the demonized man makes his plea, can I just be with you? Did you see what he just did? He made the confession of Jesus in the face of all the townspeople saying, you need to go. We don't want your kind here. You're no good for us. The quicker you leave, the better. In the midst of all that is when he says, this is my Lord and I will be with my Lord. Jesus says, those who confess Him before men, He'll confess before His Father. Those who deny Him before men, He will deny before His Father. In the face of the majority of people who are forcefully saying, Jesus, get off our shore. We don't want you here. You're no good for us. In the face of that is when He says, this is my Lord and this is my Master and I want nothing more than to be with Him. This is a picture of radical and genuine conversion to Christ. And what a stark contrast this picture is. There's so many things about this story. As we said last Sunday, there's so many things about this story that are the superlative example in Scripture. This is the superlative example of human misery, of human wretchedness. This is the greatest example of radical transformation. This is the Bible's greatest example of the length that God will go to to rescue one sheep 
This is the greatest example of, of casting out demons in the Scriptures. So many ways this is the superlative, and in this way too. Because this shows us a contrast like no other. Picture in your mind's eye what's taking place on this beach. It's a stunning picture of what's taking place on this beach. So on this beach is the Son of God. The perfect human, as we said, the one who perfectly trusts in his Father so completely that he can sleep soundly in a storm with water splashing over him. The perfect human, the Son of God, who has just demonstrated his power over the forces of the, of the demonic. But then also, around him and behind him, there are the called out ones. The called out ones, the disciples of Jesus, who are no doubt still wrestling, trying to come to grips with what they're experiencing, of what's unfolding right before their eyes. They just saw this man a matter of hours ago speak to wind and waves. They have seen for weeks and months now Crowds in the thousands and tens of thousands flocking to Him. Miracles without end. Now they see Him go to the uncleanest place possible. Cast out this hideous force of demons. And yet, what's the question that they were asking? Do you remember their question? Who is this man? That even the wind and the waves obey Him. But then notice who answered their question. Did you pick up on that? Did you pick up on the question the disciples asked? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? The question was answered a few sentences later by the demons. You are the Son of the Most High God. Who is this man? He's more than just a man. Who is this man? This man is the Son of the Most High God. That is the theme of Mark's Gospel, by the way. So here's the demons who have now fled and they have now been cast into the abyss that they didn't want to be cast into. But they were the ones who confessed the identity of Jesus. The demons never struggled with who Jesus was. They never struggled with His identity. They were always ready to admit who He was. But in admitting who He was, they admitted it with hatred. They didn't know He's the Son of God and love Him. They didn't recognize Him as the Son of God and worship Him. They recognized Him as the Son of God and they hated Him. And so they have this knowledge, this insight into who Jesus is, yet that insight did not produce in them faith. And so this is the theme of chapter 4 and chapter 5. Remember, since the beginning of the gospel, we have seen these two radically diverging reactions to Jesus. Some react to him so positively and some react to him so negatively. And in the middle of all that, Jesus gives the teaching on the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, which is to say the sin of enlightened blasphemy in the face of knowledge and understanding, in the face of being shown who this man is, you still refuse to yield. You still refuse to obey. You still refuse to submit. That is the demons. The disciples are grappling just now, really, I think, on the verge of coming to an understanding of who this man really is, but they are yielding and submitting to what they understand. The demons, they understand fully and they won't yield. And then there's the man, the previously demonized man who understands so little, but yields fully and completely. Can I just be with you? 
You are my rescuer. Can I just be with you? I will confess you before men. I will proclaim you before those who hate you, before all those people who have known me for decades, my whole life. I will proclaim before them, you are my Lord and my master. And then there's the townspeople. The townspeople who themselves now have been given some revelation of who Jesus is, some understanding of His identity, because He has just demonstrated Himself to have power over the forces of of the demonic. And yet in the, the minuscule amount of understanding that they have, they reject even that. Get away from here. We don't want your kind here. Can you just see this? It's the full scope, the full breadth of the reactions to this man Jesus right here on the beach all at one time. So now this vastly contrasting reaction. There's the man who sees Jesus, Jesus frees him from his demons, he hears the message of salvation, and he falls at Jesus' feet wanting to be with Jesus. And then the vastly contrasting reaction of the townspeople who want nothing but to get themselves shed of Jesus. So the reaction of faith and the reaction of unfaith right beside one another. I know of no other story in the Bible that contrasts these two reactions so sharply. Verse 18, and he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He did not permit them, but said to them, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how the Lord has had mercy on you. So he gives these reactions. He gives these instructions. Meanwhile, the townspeople want him to leave. Now, this reaction on the part of the townspeople, can, can we understand why they would react as they did? Isn't this such a startling puzzling reaction on the part of the townspeople. Even not really knowing much about Jesus, to put ourselves in the position of the townspeople, even not knowing much about Him, why would we imagine that they would, uh, they would react in this way? Why would they not react in some sort of way that would say, you know, He did this to, you know, we've known this guy for decades. And look at what He's done for, you know what? Maybe He could do something for so-and-so. Now, he's not nearly as bad off as this demonized legion guy was, but maybe you think that he would come and look at so-and-so? Or or maybe my mother's sick. Do you think he could come look at my mother? Or, or my wife? My husband? Do you think he would come and look? Do you think he could do something for so-and-so? Or do you think he could do something for the? Why would it not be a reaction of Jesus Who are you? Will you come to our town? And will you stay? And will you do this? And and will you come and talk to us and tell us who you are? Why the reaction that they give to Jesus? It is an absolutely stunning and, in one sense, puzzling reaction. So let's look at this reaction of the townspeople. First of all, as we said just a moment ago, this was a unanimous reaction. All the town people, Luke verse 8, chapter 8, verse 37, all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. Now, the reason that they would ask him to depart, many would say, more than a few people would say, well, that most likely is coming from the fact that Jesus just cost them a whole lot of money. This herd of 2,000 pigs, even by modern standards, that was a tremendous financial loss. And most likely it has cast the town into financial ruin. What ancient town could survive the loss of 2,000 pigs? And so more than a few people have said that they want Jesus to leave because they're not happy that Jesus has just 
brought upon them such tremendous financial loss, and they're quite unhappy about all that. And there's something to that. Because you know what the Scriptures teach us, that when the gospel comes face to face with the checkbook of lost people, then lost people don't like that. The Scriptures show that numerous times in numerous ways. When the gospel comes in conflict with how you make money, then the lost don't like that. Think of, for example, the story of Paul in Ephesus. When the revival breaks out in Ephesus and people stop buying the little idols made to Diana and they uh, cutting into the business of the people that make and sell the idols, well, then there comes the riot because you know what? We don't like it when the gospel cuts into our money. Or think of another example, Paul in Philippi, the demon-possessed slave girl who's telling fortunes and Paul casts the demons out and the owners of the slave girl lose their income by way of her and they weren't happy, so they had Paul beat up and thrown in prison too. So when the gospel comes in conflict with your checkbook, with lost people's checkbooks, then that produces a more, a greater conflict, right? And the scriptures show us that. So there's, there's something to the fact that the loss, the financial loss that they incurred was significant and probably played a part in this. However, that was not the reason they asked Jesus to leave. And we know that because Luke tells us the reason that they asked Jesus to leave. Once again, from verse 37 of Luke chapter 8, all the people of the surrounding country asked him to depart from them for, or in other words, here's the reason, for they were seized with great fear. Now that's a wonderful translation because Luke says more than they were just afraid. Luke uses a phrase there that translated very well. They were gripped. They were seized. A fear came upon them and it seized them. They asked Jesus to leave because they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Luke doesn't tell us. Mark doesn't tell us. Matthew doesn't tell us. But the Scriptures do give us reason to see at least two reasons that the townspeople were afraid of Jesus after having seen what He did to the demon-possessed man and to the herd of pigs. At least two reasons that the Scriptures tell us that the townspeople would have been afraid of Jesus. The first reason is this. Whenever humanity that doesn't know God by way of Christ, whenever those who are not in Christ perceives the power of God, the only reaction that they can have is abject fear. That's the only possible reaction. Those who do not know Christ in a relationship way, when they see the power of what God can do, the only reaction possible is a reaction of fear. And by fear, I don't mean a godly biblical fear of the Lord. I mean a fear of being afraid of, of being terrified of, of running from. That's what we see in many examples in Scripture and one of the places I think that opens this up for us is 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. A very important passage of Scripture that we return to often, for it teaches us so much. It teaches us, in this case, of the nature of love and how love dispels fear. So remember, one of the themes of the passage is faith and fear. The people, the townspeople, are fearful right now, and they have no faith. And so 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 through 19 is going to explore this for us. Verse 17, For by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. 
John is writing about those who are in Christ and the nature of their love towards God and how the nature of their love for God, that love is, is a, is nat- the character of that love is one that displaces this ungodly fear of God. So that's what he's talking about. He says, because as, because as he is, also are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, here it is, casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So in that context, Paul, or John is saying to us, those who are in Christ, your love for the Father displaces a fearfulness of the Father. Because a fearfulness of the Father is rooted in an expectation of punishment. Now, to flip this around and to look at this the other way, it works the other way as well. When we think of those who are unconverted, those who are not in Christ, who have no knowledge of God, who have no knowledge of His character, they only experience the fearfulness, the fearfulness that comes from this dreadful expectation of judgment. So when those who are outside of Christ, the unconverted, see the power of God, the only reaction they can have is great fear because they don't know Him. Again, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. They have not been enlightened to the character of God. They do not know God as compassionate, full of grace, full of mercy, forgiving, kind, patient, long-suffering. They don't know His character to be of that but they nevertheless see His power. And the white light of His power blinds them to the goodness of His character. And all they see then is something to be dreadfully afraid of. And that's these village people now. I don't mean that in the YMCA way, but that's the the villagers now. Is All they see is this power of the man. And they know nothing of His goodness and His grace, and his, even though He has been loving and kind and so gentle and graceful, graceful with this demon, demonized man, nonetheless, they don't know Him, and so all they can do is be afraid of Him. And that is lost humanity. Those outside of Christ, they can hate God, they can distrust God, they can malign God, they can speak lies of God, but they can only fear Him in a sinful way, in a sinful, fearful way, in a way that brings the dread and the terror that is the rightful dread and terror of one who stands before the power of God without the covering of Christ covering their sin. So that's the first thing that we see is that they are they're, they're terrified. They're tremendously terrified and they can only be terrified because they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And they see His power. But then, in addition to that, the Scripture also teaches us that when God sets free the captive, then that also produces a very unpleasant confrontation with our own slavery to sin. Now, this is true for the converted and the the unconverted. So everybody in the room, this is true for all of us whether converted or not converted, when we see the power of God set the captive free, and that's what Jesus came to do, Luke 4, He came to set the captive free, and He has set the captive free. When we see God set the captive free from their bondage to sin, 
that necessarily produces in us a conviction of the sin that we need to be set free from. Follow what I'm saying here. So let's think back to the man's history. Chains, cutting himself, wandering around, shrieking, naked, all this, this picture of lostness, this picture of separation from Christ. Notice the two things that his lost, unregenerate condition produced in him. They produced, as Luke says, he didn't wear clothes. His life was a life of shame. And that's what sin does. Sin heaps shame upon us. Just as this man lived in the shame of his nakedness, so also our sin heaps shame upon us. Now, those who are unconverted aren't, as we said last week, not necessarily possessed of demons as this man is. But whether we're possessed of the demonic or not is really irrelevant because all people outside of Christ are slaves to Satan. There's no third option. We either serve the kingdom of goodness or the kingdom of God, or we serve the kingdom of darkness. Those are the only two options. You do not have a third option to serve yourself or to be your own God. Many people think that they are, but you're really just serving the kingdom of darkness. You either serve the kingdom of Satan or you serve the kingdom of God. And so those who are possessed of demons or not, outside of Christ, we are slaves to Satan. And our slavery to Satan heaps shame upon us. Our bondage to sin heaps shame upon us, just like the demonized man. But the second thing that we see is his immersion in self-harm. Day and night, he would cut himself with stones. That is what sin does to everyone. Sin is the tool of its master, and its master wants to kill and destroy everyone. And so sin is always a process of self-harm. There is no sin that is not also self-harming to the one who is enslaved to it. And, and everyone who commits sin, John's Gospel, Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So sin always has this aspect of self-harm. Now you may not cut your arm with rocks like this man, but every sin in which you engage is harmful to you is destroying you, is killing you. Those images on the computer screen are destroying you. That sinful attitude that you refuse to do battle against, that forgiveness that you refuse to extend, is doing the same thing to you that the rocks were doing to the demonized man's arms and chests and legs. It's killing you. And so whether we are in Christ or not in Christ, remaining sin within us is doing the same thing. The picture is the picture of heaping shame and harming ourselves. And so as Jesus frees this man from his bondage to his demons, the townspeople can't help but see that. 
and in their heart know, I need to be set free from mine too. And that's the conviction that always comes when we see God set people free from sin. Now, God doesn't normally, often, set people free from a bondage to sin in such a dramatic, instantaneous fashion as this. Most of the time, the process is a long process, a battling against sin. But regardless, it doesn't matter. When we see God have victory over sin in other people, it necessarily brings to us the conviction that we still have sin, that we need victory over. And for those who do not have the covering of Christ, that's a very convicting reality. And these townspeople, they don't want to deal with that. They want Him to leave. Do you know that the world will never celebrate Christ setting anyone free from any sin. It doesn't matter how heinous that sin is. It doesn't matter if that's the sin of being a serial murderer. The world will never celebrate God's setting anyone free from any sin. Think of the examples that we see in Scripture of those who have been set free in dramatic ways, those who have been set free in metaphorical ways. Think of all the times we see in Scripture. The man with the withered hand. Jesus heals his hands. The Pharisees hate him. The man born blind in John 9. The Pharisees hate him. The demonized girl in Philippi. The city hates him. Those set free from idol worship in Ephesus, the city hates them. The world will never celebrate or never approve of God setting anyone free of any sin because this world is ruled by the God of this age and the God of this age wants to kill and destroy all that He can. And so we see this so clearly and plainly, don't we, in the townspeople? Instead of celebrating... Here it was, a Jew came from across the sea to set free one of their own. And instead of a thank you, no, get out of here and don't ever come back. 